going to read through Genesis 29. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the, of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Silpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she sees bearing. Let's pray. Father, Again, we come to you, Father, Lord, to give you thanks. Thank you for your word that you give us today, Father, Lord. I pray specifically for Pastor Ryan as, as you prepare him through this passage, Father, Lord, that, that he'll be a megaphone today to share your love and grace to us through this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Y'all can be seated. Everybody good? Man, we're in Genesis. It's brutally honest, isn't it? Man. Last night, Tatum was like, hey, hey, Pops. She calls me out sometimes. She's like, what are you preaching on this weekend? And I was like, well, you know, there's this story about Jacob, and it's kind of confusing. You know, Leah and Rachel, she goes, ooh, that's a rough one. I said, I know, right? <laughs> and then she goes on to say, come to think about it, really, all of those stories in the middle of Genesis are pretty, pretty rough. And, uh, and, you know, they're rough stories because they're true stories, these are stories about life in this fallen world. My question for you this morning is this. What do you do with your broken heart? You can spend your life trying to make your heart impenetrable. You can spend your life being cold, trying your best to protect yourself. But at the end of the day, this is our story. All of our hearts break. 
What does every single one of these characters have in common in this story? Jacob, Rachel, Leah, they are heartbroken people. They feel rejection in many different ways, just like me and just like you. And a brokenhearted person is someone who's put their hopes and their dreams in another person and has some way been crushed into a million pieces. If some of this is resonating with you this morning, I don't want to try to tell you how to avoid the pain. That is an endless battle, a bottomless pit. But what I want to tell you this morning is that Jesus knows what to do with your broken heart. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 61, if you've got a Bible, you can, you can flip over there for a second. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah's prophesying, he's been spoken to by the Lord about this, this preacher that will come. You know, Israel's in a really dark place at this time, and he tells what this preacher will come and do. He's pointing to Jesus, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So he's prophesying about this. Then you get to Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes into his hometown, into Nazareth, and he stands up in the synagogue, and as was the custom, someone would read from the prophets in each synagogue service. And Jesus stands up, he reads this passage, and he tells everyone in that room, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus came to tell all those people that watched Jesus grow up in that synagogue what, was that he is the one that's going to bind the broken hearts. Not that he is the one that's going to help us avoid the broken hearts, but he's going to bind it up. And today, as we look at this, that's our big idea, that Jesus has come to bind up brokenhearted people. To bind up a broken heart means that Jesus himself will first know the brokenhearted. How can he bind up a broken heart unless he knows that we have broken hearts? He will know the places in our stories where our hearts have been broken, even to utter devastation. Even when we cannot see a path forward, that's some of you in this room right now. I'm sensitive to that fact this morning. It's some of your stories, you know, two years ago. The very notion strikes at the core of who we are as a church. As we've been planning this church over the last seven or eight years, what we've realized this is what we've come to believe is that we value brokenness. Not because we, we you know, we, we uh, um, not because we, you know, we just want to be a hospital of people that never get better. But what we see is that unless you know that you're broken, you won't seek Jesus. You won't come to the one who binds up the brokenhearted. And so because of that, we value brokenness. We value vulnerability. Our first value is that we are humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit. Unless God brings you low, you will not be bound up in his love. That's the reality of what it's like to live by God's grace in this fallen world. We are broken-hearted people being put back together by Jesus. That's the journey we're on. And so how this relates to the story today is that there's a bunch of broken-hearted people in the story, and a bunch of sin comes from their broken-hearted pursuits. And so here's kind of the, the pathway that this scripture takes us that I'll, I'll just share with you as an outline, is that our passage takes us into the core of the human heart through first the search for acceptance. That's the first thing we see is that there is a hunt for acceptance. We see it in Jacob's life. We see it in Leah's life. We see it in Rachel's life. We see it in our own lives. If you've loved anything, you know that there's a hunt for it. There's a search for it. 
Secondly, it's typically followed by the devastation that comes with being rejected. There is a low, there is a pit that you hit. And then thirdly, we see that there is a, there's, a, there's an opportunity for transformation when we see that Jesus has been rejected for our acceptance. That's what we see. That's where we're going this morning. So let's dig into Genesis 29, 15. We're going to look at 15 through 21. Here's the first point. Every human heart is searching for love that leads to acceptance. So two generations, let's just kind of recap here. Two generations before this encounter with, with Jacob and Leah and Rachel and, and Uncle Laban, um, God came to Abraham, and he essentially called him out of the darkness and sin that he was living in, in the, in the land of Ur, and he essentially invited him to see the mess of the world, and then gave him a promise. I'm, essentially, I'm going to do something about this, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use your family, Abraham. I see the brokenness, and I'm going to do something about it. Now, so what this, what this meant was that there would be a promise a promised one that would come and, and bind the brokenhearted, right? So what that would mean for Abraham is there would be, the, the, the line of his family would, would mean that, that, that eventually someone would come from his family who would endure the pain of sin and bring about the promised redemption of God's people. And so that meant that, that one, at least one child, one descendant would carry the promise on down through the world. And, um, and you know, you know, none of them looked apart, but one of them's gonna one of them's gonna carry the promise. So they they have they all have these massive character flaws that we've seen. So first it was Isaac, Abraham's son that they waited forever for. Um, and then Isaac, um, when he gets older, uh, gets married. Um, and uh and 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 he and Rebecca uh, have two twin boys. Their names are Jacob and Esau. We've been we've been studying their lives in in the past weeks, and there was this promise that um this oracle, rather, that Rebecca received when she was pregnant, that the older would serve the younger. And um, the, the problem was, is that Esau really, or Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac really favored, so many character names here. Isaac really favored his boy Esau, right? Rebecca really favored Jacob, right? And so um, Isaac could not stand the fact that Jacob was going to be the one that the promise was going to go down through. And because of this, because he did not like what God had to say about this, he destroyed every relationship in his family because of his sin. It kept him from really loving his wife. It kept him from really loving Jacob or even Esau the way that a father should because he was too busy manipulating and thwarting the plan or trying to. Rebecca kept her heart from her husband. Esau grew up privileged and proud. And Jacob, and here's the key, grew up with this massive hole in his identity. The fact that his father didn't love him and rejected him. So there's always a story, right? Because what do hurt people do? They hurt people, don't they? Broken people break people. They break relationships. They blow stuff up. And the, the thing is, is that they don't stop hurting people until they realize first that they themselves are hurting. That's what's true of your story too, whether you know it or not. If you don't see yourself as someone who has a broken heart, is hurting, you, there, there, is, there is shrapnel flying from your life right now. Jacob doesn't see this in our story. He doesn't see this massive wound that he has in his identity. And so Jacob, what's he do? Well, he deceives his brother and his father, and he steals the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau, but it was really going to come to Jacob anyway, and it wrecked everything. In Jacob's pain of rejection, he hurt the two men closest to him, 
He lost all of his inheritance that he, that he you know, made the whole plan for and every relationship that mattered to him. And so as we said last week, he's on the run. And apparently they, you know, Isaac and Rebecca scheme up a plan of one last ditch effort to, to kind of send Jacob away as a charity case back to Ur where maybe Uncle Laban will care for him. And, um, and so he gets back to, to there in, in the first uh, 14 verses of 29. We're not going to look too in depth at those. But basically what happens is that he gets, he gets there. He, uh, he gets to this well. Uh, he meets these uh, shepherds there. They realize that, hey, this guy knows something about farming, about shepherding. Um, and he ends up meeting, um, he ends up seeing Rachel there. And he's just stunned by her, right? And I think he's thinking, you know, maybe, maybe my life could be put back together if I could just have her. He does realize that it's his Uncle Laban's daughter. And, uh, and we're told that she has this beautiful appearance, and Rachel is becoming everything to Jacob because he's got this hole that he's just trying to fill, right? This hole that, that isn't filled by God, isn't filled by his father, his mother, his brother, anybody else. He's just trying to stuff relationships into that hole. And so Jacob um, meets Laban, and, and he ends up staying there for a, a month, is what verse 14 tells us. And I think Laban realizes that Jacob is a phenomenal shepherd over this time. And so what he asked him is like, hey, you know, verse 15, Laban asked Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. In other words, dude, you're going to make me a lot of money because you're doing things with these sheep that I haven't been able to do my whole life. What are your wages? What would it cost me to have you as a part of the team here? And, um, and, and here's this love struck man. And I think, I think, you know how it is if, you know, I think parents always know, right? When their kids are kind of going down that, they're just blinded, right? They're disillusioned with a relationship. I think Laban completely sees it right here. He sees exactly what's going on. This man has this gaping hole in his heart and he's, Laban uses it as an opportunity to benefit from his broken heart right here. Verse 16 says this, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't know her, but he knew he loved her, right? And he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. I mean, that's, I mean, right off the bat, he's like, I'll give you seven years. Now, here's the crazy thing about this. Um, you know, Jacob responds to Laban's questions with one, one answer, Rachel. That's what I want. That's what will fill me. That's what will give me hope. That's what will give me life. That will make everything in my life better. It's all physical. It's all surface level. Um, you know, and Leah's also mentioned here. Leah doesn't look like Rachel is what the scriptures tell us. Commentators aren't real sure what weak eyes mean. It could mean that she had a, a physical impairment. It could mean that she had eyes that were crossed. It could mean any of those types of things. But there was something about her appearance that was not like Rachel's. And everybody noticed it, apparently. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her, this infatuation that he has with her. I'm not saying it's wrong to be infatuated with your future wife, but it's a pretty shallow infatuation, right? It reminds us of probably most relationships in the world, right? Then Jacob said to Laban, hey, time's up. Give me my wife. It's time to consummate this thing, right? I've been waiting seven years for this night. This tells us about Jacob's heart right here, doesn't it? How in the world would you talk to your uncle like this, right? Just get down to business. Give me, you know, 
give me your daughter. Time to get down to business. You ain't got to talk to your uncle like that if you're in your right mind. This statement is so disrespectful and blunt. His love is physical, and it seems like that's the extent of it for him. It shows us his heart. It shows us what he thinks marriage is all about. Maybe he'll finally be fulfilled with this beautiful wife that's been given to him, that he's worked for. Because here's the deal. Jacob didn't have his father's love. He didn't have his mother's love. He didn't have his brother's love. And it doesn't seem like he had God's love yet. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to find love and find acceptance. You know, that craving, insatiable center of his life. He's looking for anything to satisfy it. And this search for acceptance is like this, guys. When you are empty, you will sacrifice almost anything for it. Whatever you think will give you fulfillment and acceptance. You'll stake it all on the line in a disillusioned pursuit. And all of these longings and hopes for acceptance and fulfillment were now aimed directly at Rachel. And um, Jacob became blind to reason. He, he began to, to, to stake his, uh, all, all, everything that he was on this relationship. And here's how we know that Jacob was so disillusioned about it. Because, you know, Laban says, you know, he, he's a good negotiator, right? Just like any, anybody, right? You don't, you don't come in and, and say, here's what I'll give you for this. You come in and you say, what do you want for it, right? Because you got to get a baseline when you're negotiating. Well, he just comes in and he, he just immediately throws out this number of seven years. Now, the typical dowry payment for someone, this is very common custom in this day, would mean, would mean that you would give a, a price. You would you'd make a payment to the father uh, to, take his, to take his daughter. Now, typically, this would be something like 18 to, um, like 20 to 30 shekels, I think, is what I read in these commentaries. 30 to 45. So what is a shekel, right? I don't, I don't have shekels in my bank account. Um, you don't either. So what's a shekel? Well, shekel was basically a, 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 um, a currency, and most common people would earn, you know, um, one and a half to two shekels for a month of work. So you do the math here, okay, so that's, you know, 18 to 24 shekels a year. So like maybe one to, like two years maybe would have been a good, he's like seven. So immediately he's willing to pay four times the typical dowry for Rachel. So Laban at this point just begins to see this joker is blind. He's out of his mind. Let's see what we can get out of him, right? A great uncle, huh? And, and you know, friends, anytime we find ourselves in this kind of a place, and I have before, where you, where you are willing uh, to weight something, a relationship, so heavily, there is only one place to go, isn't there? There's only one place to go. It's to be devastated and to fall because no human relationship can handle the weight of divinity. And most of us, Christian or not, unknowingly put that kind of weight on our relationships. It could be with a close friend of yours, uh, most commonly in a spouse. I was, um, I know this feeling well. I was at a counseling session just last year with a group of pastors and we were sharing our hearts with each other, uh, which is something I'm learning to do, uh, and it's great. And uh, we're walking through this exercise together about the significance of our relationships. And uh, we, we, this counselor had us each do this kind of different exercise. And I remember I was sitting around this table, and, 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 and he asked me to seat the people that were, that, that were like most significant in my life around the table and what they meant to me. And he, he did this weird thing where he's having me talk to him. And st- I, you know, it, it worked, okay, but it was weird. And, um, and um, uh, <laughs> I got to, um, 
it occurred to me through this that, uh, you know, Megan was kind of seated at the, at the other end of the table in my mind at this. And it occurred to me through this process that I had inadvertently made an idol out of my marriage. And it probably has something to do with my own story and marriage and my family. And it, and, and, um, it occurred to me that, that really the rise and fall of my emotional health and the rise and fall of um, just my joy and happiness was really uh, correlated to that per- perceived health of my marriage that everything would just rise and fall on that. And Megan, you know, may or may not have been aware of that uh, over the years. Um, And I got to this place where I said to Jack, I said, you know, uh, I have to have the best marriage imaginable to make my life work the way that that I think that it should. Um, And what that that meant is he was, you know, um, talking with me is that Megan had to be everything in our family. And um, he got to this point where, you know, I'm, I'm starting to tear up. Jack's like, he's like... He's really messing me up here. He gets down, and, um, and he, he kind of leans down to me, and he says, how in the world can she possibly carry all that weight that you're putting on her? And I just broke. He said, you're asking her to redeem you, to deliver you, and to save you. How can she possibly do that? You see, because there's this background track kind of playing in my mind then unless everything is always going as well as it possibly can, then, then the, the same things that I've experienced in my family are going to happen to me. And, um, you know, my sanctification journey is probably like yours. There's, there's been people like that in my life where I've enthroned them whether they've asked for it or not. And the reality is, is that you really can't, if, if you, you really have to give space to the Holy Spirit for Jesus to bind up your broken heart. Because the reality is, is that I, I, any time that, uh, you know, Megan and I were being an argument or something or a disagreement, I would just immediately assume that I had done something wrong, that something was wrong with me and that uh, this was my fault. And, and you can't have a relationship that's built on that kind of type of codependency, can you? You just can't see God grow a marriage like that. And so, you know, I'm sharing a little bit of my dirty laundry here, but the Lord is working through that in me. Um, I know what it's like to be in Jacob's shoes in a different way. And I bet you do too. I bet there are people in your life that you've enthroned and you've put them there and they, don't, they may or may not know it. And so my question to you today is this. You know, we're all on this journey to be accepted in love, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, whether you're, you know, a tough guy or not. But is there any relationship or hope of a relationship? Maybe you're, maybe you're single and you just really long to be married to be with someone. Is there any relationship or hope of relationship that you've made an idol out of and you don't even know it? You haven't even seen it. And the way that you can know that you've done this is is when you answer this question. If blank, insert that person's name, was not in my life, life would not be worth living. It's a heavy question. Or if this spouse was not in my life, would, would life be worth living? Or if this type of a friend was not in my life, life would not be worth living. Because what we do is we put all of our weight, all of our hope, all of our joy on that idea, and that person will never, ever, ever be able to redeem you. Now, we see every, every, everybody's on this journey, right? We see, we see it in Jacob, we see it in Rachel, we see it in Leah. Every human heart is, number two, is faced with the devastation of rejection. So Laban, back to our story here, is out for his own gain. Jacob's made an idol out of a person. Um, How does it play out? The same way it plays out with us. Devastation. Let's read verse 22 here. 
Laban gathers together all the people of the place and he makes a feast. I'm about to be rich, he says. Um, But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob. The old swaparoo there. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah and to her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what have you done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you, key word here, deceived me? Laban said, you know, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the, you know, before the, the older. You should ask about that, right? You should have known your context a little better. He says, complete the week, you know, the wedding week of this one, and I'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so, completed the week. Um, Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife and another servant. And Jacob consummated that marriage as well. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years, right? Kind of straightforward here. Laban swaps out Leah for Rachel in the night. Jacob wakes in the morning to discover the reality that Laban has deceived him into serving for another seven years. And he has not one wife, but two wives. And I just want to make a, a small note about bigamy or polygamy, having multiple you know, spouses like is here. Um, the Bible in no way condones this. Because I, I, I get questions about this. You know, tell me about that. You know, I saw him and all these wives. In fact, I would say this in every single case of bigamy or polygamy in the Bible, does it not end in utter devastation? Every single one of them. So you can say, well, the Bible doesn't really say, yes, it does. And all of them end in devastation. Um, And so that's what we see happen here. So Jacob asked Laban a question. And I think the light bulbs are clicking in in Jacob's mind and his heart and his soul as he's asking Laban this question. Because he says this word, he says, why have you done what? Deceived me. This is the same word that is used in Genesis 27 to talk about what Jacob did to his father. Why have you deceived me? So when Jacob had deceived his father and destroyed his family because of his own rejection, it appeared that Jacob is thinking about what he did to his father in this moment. It's the same word that's used here. He has reaped what he's sown. But now we have Leah. My heart just breaks for Leah in this story. Does yours? Yeah, this oldest daughter... And the note that the Bible tells us about Leah is that she was particularly unattractive compared to her sister. And she had to live all of her life in the face of this type of a rejection. Just think about how awful that is, right? Leah is a woman who her father clearly doesn't want. Some of us in this room feel that way this morning. I mean, how awful of a man do you have to be to do this to your daughter? I mean, what he's thinking about is himself. He's thinking, how can I unload her? Here's a great way for me to finally be an empty nester and get her out of the house because no one's going to marry her. To think that way about another image bearer of God that, that is your child. Leah is now married to a man who doesn't want her. She's a girl that no one wants. So what does she do? She does the same thing that Jacob does in a different way. She thinks, how can I get Jacob to finally love me? How can I be the Rachel? How can he look at me and glow the same way that I see him glowing after my sister? 
How can I change his mind about who I am? I'm empty. How can Jacob fill me with life? Verse 31 says this, when the Lord saw Leah was hated, he saw her, okay? He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived, and I want, you to, I want you to listen to the journey that Leah is on as she's having these children, facing the rejection of her husband every single day, and what God is doing in the midst of it. Leah conceived and bore a son. Remember, Rachel couldn't have children. Leah bears a son, and she called his name Reuben, which means to see. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon me in my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means to hear. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will finally be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. What more could he want? Therefore, his name should be called Levi, which means to be attached. So sad because you hear her heart on display. Every time she calls one of her little boy's names, she is confronting the rejection and, and embracing the longing that is inside of her. Think about this. Yet the Lord sees her and he takes her on this journey, a very public journey, a very, a very uh, generational journey. Because friends, while God was hammering out Leah's identity uh, in the one true God, Yahweh, a third of the nation of Israel was birthed. Do you realize this? Through this awful relationship, God is fulfilling his promise. Those are three of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Reuben's born and she's thinking, well, maybe I won't be invisible anymore. Maybe he'll finally see me. Maybe I won't have to watch him grieve that he's not with Rachel and he's with me. Simeon's born now. Maybe Jacob will hear me. Maybe he'll, he'll want to know what I have to offer to the world. Levi's born. She thinks, I've given him three boys. What more could he want? My body is ruined from childbirth. Surely this will make him accept me. For Jacob, it was his father's love that was idolized. For Leah, it was Jacob's love. Now in both cases, the Bible doesn't hold anything back, does it? It's the best marriage book you could ever read because it's so real. It's a brutal situation, especially for Leah. And I don't want to minimize that because you will miss the depth of the redemption that God is fulfilling in this. But let's just talk about expectations for just a second here. Isn't this how it always happens? We place all of our expectations on this person on this relationship, on this idea. You know, it could be a spouse or a new spouse for some of us. It could be a friend or a new friend. It could be a job or a new job. Name whatever it is. Name whatever your Rachel is, the thing that you think that will finally fulfill your life. But when you wake up in the morning church, it's always Leah, isn't it? It always is. God is too kind to let you find redemption and hope and joy in anything other than him. And so he destroys us when we do that. The fall is long. The pit is deep because no human relationship can ever bear the weight of divinity. 
We are prone to crush the people and the opportunities we pursue because we put the weight of our identity on them. They were never, ever, ever meant to hold them. And in doing that, we don't actually get to enjoy friendship, fellowship, marriage the way that God designed it because we're searching for something that only God can give us out of those relationships. So what are we going to do? We're all on this search, whether we're going to acknowledge it or not. We've all experienced devastation to some degree in, the, in that pursuit. And here's where we see Jesus. Here's our third point. Every human heart has the opportunity to receive acceptance because Jesus was rejected. So let's look at this last verse in Genesis 29. I think it's the key to the whole thing. Leah is in this place where the Lord opens her womb again, and she conceives, and she bears another son. But it's different this time, because here's what she says. Forget about Jacob. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. That word for Lord is the word Yahweh. It is the personal name of the covenant-keeping God of the universe. It is not this general, universalistic, um, you know, Elohim kind of word for God. It is the specific name of God. And what we see here is that her, the way that she's thinking about this has changed. And so what she does is she calls his name Judah, right? And Judah means praise. So let me ask you a question. Who is Judah? Out of all of the 12 tribes of Jacob's family that end up forming Israel in those early years, which one do you think King David comes from? Judah. Which one do you think Jesus comes from? Judah. Isaiah will go on to prophesy about this, to prophesy about the rejection of Jesus. Because God makes Leah, the girl who no one wanted, the great, 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 you know, times 60 grandmother of Jesus Christ. That's how God works. He redeems what is lost in our lives. He takes what we, what the, the unrealistic expectations that we put and try to idolize people. And he turns all of that in to an opportunity where we can praise God. As we close our time, we turn to the table. I want to remind you of who Jesus is, as you think about this pursuit that you've been on in your life, as you think about the rejection that you faced, and you wonder what God's done about it. I want to remind you of this. So I want to invite you to just kind of close your eyes and just kind of sit and listen and let these words from Isaiah 53 wash off, wash over you uh, today. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Church, he was Leah. For surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned 
every one of us to his own way, the brokenhearted way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silence. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was not Jacob. He was not Laban. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Last verse. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors, like me and you. Church, this is Jesus. This is how he binds up our broken hearts because he becomes the broken one in our place and he takes the weight of it all on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we are broken-hearted people and we don't even know it. God, we can't even recognize the weight that we feel when our longings and our hopes are dashed into a million pieces. And Father, what we want to declare today is that we value brokenness. Some of us are terrified of this, God. We are terrified of being undone. And it is the only place that we can be put back together the real way, the way of the cross. And so, Father, we pray that we would see and we would believe that Jesus had to be crushed so that we could be bound up in his love. Father, we we confess that we're tired of living the world's way. We're tired of this shallow, appearance-based life that's empty. God, would you give us substance in Jesus this morning and show us the power of his grace. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.